Hebrews chapter 1. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 1. I hope that the study of Hebrews thus far, we're only one week into it so far, but I hope it's been a blessing to you and an encouragement to you. I hope last week showed you Christ in a wonderful way. You saw his glory and saw his beauty, and I hope that tonight, by the mercy of God, the spotlight will again be put on the Lord Jesus. What I want to do tonight is I want to read verses 1 to 3, because that sort of brings us up to where we are tonight. That's a review from last week. And then I'm going to read the rest of the chapter, all of chapter 1, because it's sort of however far we get in my sermon notes, and then we'll have to be done, and then we'll pick it up next week with part 2. So I'm going to read the whole chapter, and we'll see how far we get. Follow with me, and may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, he who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they all will become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed." But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Every young child loves to go fast. Every young child loves from the youngest of ages to ride on their daddy's back as the daddy is running down the hallway and the kid will say, go faster, go faster. And the father may go as fast as he can go and the father would inevitably say, there's still something better to come. When the child grows up a little bit, they go to a carnival, and they go on a carnival ride, and they ride this this fast little roller coaster, and the father says to the son, who is absolutely thrilled with going fast, my son, I have something even better than this. When the son is even a little bit taller, they go to a local theme park, and they ride a wooden roller coaster, and the kid loves it, and the kid is awed by that roller coaster, and the kid says, whoa, that was great, and the dad said, yeah, but there's something even better. Then they go to Six Flags Magic Mountain, one of my personal favorites in L.A., and the father takes the son on the best ride, X2, one of the coolest and super fast coasters that I've ever been on. And the kid loves it. And the kid says, whoa, that was great. And the father says, yeah, but there's something even better. They get on an airplane and they go to Abu Dhabi and they ride the fastest coaster in the world. The Formula Rosa goes 150 miles an hour. The kid says, wow, that 
That was better. That was better. 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 Could you imagine argumentation like that? Saying, you see that? Jesus is better. Do you see that? Jesus is better. Do you see that? Jesus is better. Do you you see this? Do you behold this? Do you look at that? Jesus is better. Can you imagine that argumentation that would absolutely show that Jesus is better? He's better. He's better. I love how Hebrews chapter 1 verse 4 tells us, That Jesus has become as much better. Or if you have the ESV, he has become superior. He is better. Why? Because the Greek idea of the word better or superior is the idea he is most excellent. Jesus is most excellent. None can compare with him. It's like the kid that goes on the fastest coaster and he says, there's nothing better than this. It's like the true Christian when he beholds the glory of Christ. Truly, there is nothing, nothing that compares to the superiority and the glory and the excellence and the majesty of Jesus Christ. Now, we're in Hebrews, and you remember from last week, just to remind you, we're reading and studying the book of Hebrews, and it's often called a letter, and rightly so, it is a letter, but really, Hebrews is a sermon. It was a sermon that was written down, and we know that from Hebrews 13, verse 22, which calls it a word of exhortation. When Paul went to the synagogues in the book of Acts, he would preach a word of exhortation. This was a sermon in the early church that was written down and transcribed. It takes about an hour to read, and it was a sermon that is calling believers to hold fast to Jesus. Hold fast. Cling. Trust in him. Believe in him. Rely upon him. Hold fast to Jesus. Why? He's better. He's better. He's better. Let me see if I can show you what the author is doing in these opening two chapters. The book of Hebrews. In verses 1 to 3, we looked at it last week. We saw these glorious pronouncements about the Son, the Lord Jesus. We, we saw that he is the heir. We saw that he is the creator. We saw that he is truly divine. We saw that he sustains and upholds all things. We saw that he is the Savior. We saw that he is the one who is the majestic king over all things. These are the glorious pronouncements of the Son. But now tonight, we're going to begin verse 4. Now, don't miss what the author is doing. Don't miss what the preacher is doing. If the opening three verses is like the sermon introduction, declaring who Jesus is, don't miss this. Now, beginning in verse 4 all the way to 14, there are seven Old Testament proofs that he is better. Let me declare how great Jesus is, and now let me prove through seven Old Testament scriptures, and we're going to look at that tonight and next week. Then you come to chapter 2. Look at it with me, verse 1. For this reason, the preacher says, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we don't drift away. What a great preacher. You've heard my sermon introduction. You've heard about the glory of the Son of God. You've heard the proof from the Hebrew Scriptures how the Son is divine. He is God. He is majestic. So now you need to make sure that you don't drift. Don't drift. Cling to Him. Hold on to Him. What a great preacher. What a great opening to this sermon. And so beginning with Hebrews chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, the author is going to give seven quotations from the Old Testament. And it's going to be from Psalms, it's going to be from Deuteronomy, it's going to be from the book of 2 Samuel. I mean, here's a preacher who knows his Bible. Here's a preacher who's going to quote from the Bible as he is preaching because he wants the people to know 
Jesus. The Son is better. He's better. And you got to hold on to him. You got to cling to him. You got to trust in him because chapter two will say, don't drift, don't drift, don't drift. Now, I want you to look with me in your Bible at chapter one, verse four. And the author, after making these opening statements about who the son is, look at verse four. He says, having the son, having become as much better or more superior than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. And you and I read that and we think, well, that's kind of weird. What do you mean he's better than the angels? Why would he say that? I mean, you and I think angels are pretty cool, but why would we need to say that Jesus is better than angels? Well, I need to give you a little bit of background. In the intertestamental period, what we call Second Temple Judaism, into the first century AD, there was a lot of very intense Jewish focus on the angels. And some of it was good, and some of it was mixed with error. Some of it became overly obsessed with, and many Jews became so intrigued by angels, it seemed that at this time, many of the early believers in the church almost entertained teaching that elevated angels almost to the point of worshiping them. Many believed that angels were so mighty that they that they controlled the movements of the stars. That was one Jewish teaching. Another Jewish teaching taught that angels were so mighty that they took care of the seas, or they took care of the frost, or another angel took care of the dew, or another angel took care of the rain, the rain, or the thunder, or the snow. So angels in Jewish thinking sort of elevated to a very high position where many were tempted to venerate them to honor them, almost worship them. Angels were vast, they were important, and they were powerful. And so the Jews highly esteemed angels, and so many in the first century time were tempted to worship angels and honor them. That's why one of the professors of classical Judaism at the University of Washington recently wrote a book on Judaism in antiquity, and she said angels played a significant and often underappreciated role in the lives of Jewish people in antiquity. So it's hard for us to kind of imagine that, but the Jews were, were, were highly elevating angels so much that many were tempted to worship angels. Let's just be clear for a moment. Angels were messengers from God to visit godly people, even Jewish people like Daniel chapter 8. We know that the law of God was appointed through angels. Galatians 3.19 says that. And Stephen in his sermon, Acts 7. We know that Colossians chapter 2 verse 18 tells us that there were even some in the early Christian community, even in the city of Colossae, that were tempted to worship angels. And Paul says, don't let anyone deceive you into the worship of angels. And lest we think, well, that's all kind of foolish. Remember, one of the Jewish apostles, John himself, Revelation 19, was tempted to bow down and worship an angel. He was tempted to worship an angel. So we understand that angels are made by God. They had a high calling. They had a wonderful position of service to the Lord. But let's not forget Psalm 103 and Psalm 148 commands angels to worship the Lord. So if angels are called to worship the Lord, we don't want to be tempted to worship angels. We must worship the Lord. Okay, let me illustrate it. So I think about it like this. Angels are kind of like an NCAA Division I college hockey team, okay? They're, they're, they're like a good hockey team. They're good and they're impressive, but they're not the major league all-stars. Only Jesus is the major league all-star. He's the best. He's superior. There's none that even comes close to the majesty and power and glory of Jesus. Now, with all of that background, 
Look at verse 4. So after the author gives the introduction of the Son in verses 1 to 3, now in verse 4, the Son, having become as much better than the angels, why? Because he has inherited a more excellent name than they. And you and I read that and we think, Jeff, I get it, I understand it, but hold on. You and I probably, probably aren't tempted to worship angels. You're not here today probably thinking, you know, in my Christian life, I'm tempted to worship angels. That's probably not you. The issue is this. So what do you highly honor? What do you highly honor in your life? For some, it could be good works. It could be good works. You know, I, I, I believed in Jesus, and I've been baptized, and I've done this, and I've lived this way, and I've gone to church, and I'm a member of this church, and, and I hand out tracts, and I share the gospel, and all these good works which are good, but they're not to be trusted in. There's some who might boast in their separation from the world. You know, I'm not like them. Well, my work is really tanking. They're, they're really going woke. They're going all the sinful cultural agenda, but I'm not them. You know, we're not like the pride people. We're, we're different from them. And there's almost this pride of self-honor that I'm not like those people. Or maybe we could be tempted to highly honor comfort and ease so much that it becomes an idol in our lives. Or control. I got to have control. I got to control my life, my calendar, my schedule, my family, my marriage, my kids. I got to control. I have to be in control. Maybe that's a temptation. Maybe for some, it might be a a temptation toward acceptance. I just want to be accepted by people. I just want to be liked by, I just want my boss and my team at work and and my family and my, I just want to be liked. I want to be appreciated. I I want to be respected by people. And, And maybe that craving has gone to such a height where you almost worship that. Maybe for some it's, I want prestige. I want fame. I want, I want to be liked. I want to have the applause. I want to be honored. Or maybe more religiously, here are some very common temptations in our day. First is the pragmatic formula. Just if you do this, things will be all better for you in your life. Just do this and you'll get the results that you want. You know, live this way, pray this prayer, do this and God will surely bless you. Or maybe for some, they're tempted to trust in a psychological aid. Just kind of cope through the hardships of life through all these recommendations from a licensed therapist. If I, if I can just get the right counsel, if I can get the right advice, and then my life will be better. And some people yearn for that so much, it kind of becomes God in their life. Or maybe a tolerant community. A tolerant community, you know, a non-judgmental community. We accept, we embrace, we welcome, we invite. Just come as you are, stay as you are, be who you are, identify how you want. We embrace everyone. And some people view that at such a high level, it becomes God. Or maybe more subtle for some of us, perhaps, is a comfortable lifestyle. Just don't demand too much. Work hard, make money, have fun. Make sure you're comfortable, live it up. Or a self-fulfilling mantra, the terrible counsel that God helps those who help themselves. God, you, you couldn't imagine heaven without me. That kind of a thinking. It's just a self-absorbed, a self-fulfilling, a self-idolatrous, a, a self-venerating mantra. And, and there's people that crave these things. And there's people that live for these things. And it's almost as if the author is saying in the book of Hebrews, whatever it is that you're tempted to elevate, Jesus is far better. So for you and me, it may not be angels. But there's a whole lot of other things that you and I are tempted to elevate in our lives. So with all of this introduction, the whole point of chapter 1 going into chapter 2 is the author is going to clearly say Jesus is better than angels.
because the Jews were tempted to worship angels. For you and me, whatever it is, whatever it is that you're tempted to elevate, whatever it is that you think is going to bring you happiness, joy, satisfaction, pleasure, contentment, and and fulfillment in life, it's like Octor would say to you, Jesus is infinitely better. Infinitely better. Pause. Footnote. What an evangelistic tool. People that you go to work with tomorrow are living for a lot of different things. Our kids have all kinds of reasons that they're living, purposes of life. Family members, parents, children, relatives, neighbors, they're living for something. And what would Octor say? Jesus is better. He's more superior. He is far greater. That's what you and I need to say to people. He is better, better, better. Why? He's better because of his person. He's better because of his position. He's better because of his purification. He's better because of all of his perfections. He's better because of all the promises that he gives. And he's better because of his profound preeminence overall. Jesus is better. But I want to summarize all of that and take you to the text for the rest of Hebrews 1. And tonight and next week, I want to give you five compelling reasons why Jesus is better. And if we get through three of them tonight, we'll do the next two next week. If we do two of them tonight, we'll do the next three next week. It all depends on how far we get and how long you're willing to stay, really. So, Jesus is better. The Son is better. Jesus is is better. He is more superior. He is the greatest. He is majestic. He is worthy of worship. He is better. Five compelling reasons. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you these reasons, and then we're going to go to the Old Testament and look at how the author is going to prove it, and then we're going to apply it together. Number one, the Son is better because He is the divine Son. He is the divine Son. Son, And that's the whole point of verse 5. And there's a lot of theology in verse 5. And there's two Old Testament scriptures in verse 5. And we could get lost in all the theology of the Psalms and 2 Samuel and the covenants and all that God is doing. But you see at the beginning of verse 5 and you see the end of verse 5, the key word son. That's what is linking these verses together. The author wants you to know that Jesus is better because he is the divine son. It's almost like the author is saying, who among the angels has ever been given the honorable title Or who has ever had the supernatural place of being called Son of God? What angel could say that? Pick Gabriel, pick Michael, pick the seraphim, pick all the angels. No angel can claim this title. And what he's going to do is the author in the sermon is going to take us back to two scriptures, and I want to read them. And if you want to go with me, I think it'd be great. Psalm 2 is the first. Jarrett read this earlier, but Psalm 2 is the first quotation. This is a messianic psalm all about the coming kingship of sovereign Messiah. It's all about the Messiahship of the Son and how He is the King. He will be appointed on Mount Zion. He will rule over the nations. And God says to him, if you look at verse 7, Psalm 2, 7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, I'll give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You're going to break them with a rod of iron and shatter them like earthenware. What's the point? What angel has ever had this honor? 
What angel has ever been the son of God where God said to the angel, you are my son, you're going to be king, you are going to reign. Psalm 2 is the Davidic son who is going to come to reign over the earth as king, seated on Mount Zion. He will rule with an iron scepter over all the nations on the earth. What? A son? What, what angel, what angel ever has been given that title? And then Hebrews is going to go to another quotation, and it's from 2 Samuel chapter 7. And if you turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7, or if you choose to just listen, l- listen to what the, 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 the context is doing. This is all about the Davidic covenant. God makes a covenant with David, And God says, David, I'm going to raise up one of your sons, and he's going to have an everlasting kingdom. Well, Solomon had a pretty cool kingdom, but it wasn't an everlasting one, nor did it spread as widespread as God declared it to be. 2 Samuel 7, 13, in this Davidic covenant, he, the Messiah, will build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me. That's what God says he will do to Messiah. That God is going to make a covenant with David, that one of David's descendants is going to rise up and have an eternal throne. He's going to have an eternal kingdom. God's love will never depart from him. The kingdom and the house of David will endure forever, and the Davidic throne will be established. What angel has ever had this profound privilege? Now, back to Hebrews. What does that teach? Why son? What what does that mean, son? Well, we need to understand very clearly what the author is saying and what the theology of Jesus as the Son of God is all about. This is what theologians call the eternal sonship of Jesus. Don't don't think time. Don't think chronology. Don't think that, well, Jesus became the Son at some point. That would be inaccurate thinking. It's not that Jesus became a Son at some point. Rather, the point is that Jesus is the Son in relationship, in intimacy with the Father. Jesus has always been the Son of God. The second person of the Godhead has always related to the Father in intimate, relational nearness. That's the idea of sonship. That's the idea of sonship. When the author says, to which of the angels, verse 5, did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. To which of the angels did God ever have such a close, intimate, divine, eternal relationship with? What angel ever had that position? Answer, none. None. Now, Jesus is the beloved son, and he's accepted by the father, and he has intimate relationship and communion with his father, and that was publicly announced at the resurrection. Romans 1 talks about that, and Acts 13 talks about that. But but Jesus did not become the son of God at his incarnation or after his incarnation. He has always been the eternal Son of God. That's why Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 tells us, When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as son. So, do you see the, the point of the divine sonship of Jesus is not that Jesus became a son at some point chronologically. The point is, what angel ever, ever had the close relationship? What angel ever had the, 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 the divine fellowship within the Godhead like Jesus? What angel ever had that? Answer, none. None. If you're in Hebrews chapter 1, 
Just turn the page to Hebrews chapter 5. If you look at Hebrews 5 and look at verse 5, you'll see the same quotation. Verse 5, so also Christ, he did not glorify himself to be a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he says in another passage, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And then verse 9, having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. What does that mean? This son who came is God. He is God. Relationally intimate with the Father. What angel? What angel ever had that? Whatever it is you live for. And I'm tempted to live for whatever it is that could slowly creep up into a little idol status in our life that can't claim the position of divine communion with the father. Only Jesus. He's better. He's better. What could ever attain such a high honor and a glorious position than this? Only Jesus, the divine son. So the author, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, he wants you to know Jesus is better. He is supreme. He is superior. He is glorious. He is magnificent. Why? Because he is the divine son. Nothing else can claim that title. Implication? Worship him. Implication? Bow before him. Implication? Give your life to him. Implication, trust in him. Because number one, he's the divine son. Number two, if you're taking notes, the author is going to show us, number two, why is the son better? What is the compelling reason? Number two, he is the worshipped firstborn. He is the worshipped firstborn. The worshipped firstborn. Now, there's some people who are really easy to impress, right? I mean, some kids are really easy to impress, right? You can take a a young child out to Lion's Choice and get them a 25-cent ice cream cone, and man, they are super impressed. It used to work for us, not anymore for our family, but... Or you can go to the gas station and buy them a cheap lemonade, and they love that, and they're super impressed. But the author is saying... In chapter 1, verse 6, don't let that be you. Don't be so easily impressed with all the things of this world. That's the point of verse 6. Don't be overly impressed by the things of this creation. Why? Jesus is better. He's better. He's greater. Jesus dazzles, Jesus stuns, Jesus impresses, Jesus is more beautiful, Jesus is superior. Now, if you look at verse 6, here's another proof that Octor is going to give about the supremacy of the Son. He is better and worthy of worship. Why? Because guess what? He's worshipped by the angels. So why would you worship the angels if they worship the Son? That's the whole point of verse 6 and 7. Follow with me, verse 6 of Hebrews 1. When he, that is God, again, that is another quotation, when he again brings the firstborn into the world, God says, let all the angels of God worship him. Worship the Son. That's what God is saying. The Jehovah's Witnesses, they love this verse. You know why, don't you? Because right here in verse 6, they love to say, ha, God brought Jesus into the world as the firstborn. And the JWs are quick to say, look, right here in the Bible, he's the first one who was born. See it, right? That's what it says. Wrong. Wrong. Because in Jewish culture and in the Greco-Roman writings, the term firstborn, listen carefully, has nothing to do with chronology. It has nothing to do with chronology. 
Rather, it has to do with position of honor. Now, often the firstborn son would often be the first one who was born, but not always. It's not, when you're talking about a firstborn in Jewish thinking, it's not talking about the first one who had a beginning and he was born in time. That's not the thinking at all. Rather, the thinking is, this is the one with the chief position of honor, or literally, the Greek, he is the chief, most honored one. When God brings the most honored one into the world, when God brings the the most elevated one into the world, when God brings the one of highest honor into the world, that's the idea of firstborn. Yeah, maybe I illustrate this with, with uh, Prince Philip. You think of Prince Philip, who was Queen Elizabeth's husband. I mean, he had quite an honorable title, if you recall. He had 133 words in his honorable title. I mean, all these long lists of honors given to him. I mean, he's the, the Royal Highness and the Duke and the Royal Knight and the Grand Master and on and on and on for 133 words. Jesus is far more, far better. Whatever title of royalty Prince Philip had can't even compare with the glory of the honor and the dignity of Jesus Christ. Jesus is much, much better. So back to verse 6, when God brings the highly honored one, the supreme one, the firstborn into the world. Here's what he says. Let all the angels of God worship him. By the way, that word firstborn is used in Colossians 1, referring to the deity of Jesus Christ as the firstborn. It's found in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. He is the firstborn, the one who freed us from our sins. It's found in Romans 8, verse 29, that those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he might be the firstborn, the highly honored one among all of his brethren. Jesus is the most honored one. And the author's point is even the angels. The angels are commanded to worship the son. Now, the author is amazingly skilled. And there's a lot of technical nuances with Greek here, so I don't want to get lost in all of that. But I want you to turn with me to Psalm 97, because this is where he's quoting from. Psalm 97. Now, Psalm 97, as you're turning there, it's one of the kingship psalms. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let all the islands be glad. Fire goes out before God, and it burns up his adversaries. The lightnings of God lit up the world. The earth saw and trembled. I mean, God is powerful. That's Psalm 97. Verse 6. The heavens declare his righteousness, and all the peoples have seen his glory. Let all those be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast themselves of idols. And here's what the psalmist says. Worship him, all you gods. Or another way to render that from the Hebrew, let all the angels worship him. There's a lot of technical nuances there. But what's the point of this? The point is that in Psalm 97, God is amazingly great. And God is commanding the angels to worship. What is the author of Hebrews doing? Worship the Son. Why? The Son is this God. The Son is this God. Angels are examples of worship. They're not to be objects of worship. Worship Him, all you angels. The angels are commanded to worship the Messiah because He is superior to them. You know, think about this for a moment. The Bible says in the book of Job that angels saw creation and they marveled. They marveled. And then we read in Luke chapter 2 that angels marveled and they worshipped at the birth of the God-man in Bethlehem. 
Bethlehem. And then we read in Matthew chapter 4 how when Jesus had been tempted for 40 days by Satan, the angels came and they helped, they ministered to Jesus. We know that according to 1 Timothy chapter 3.16, the angels saw Christ. And then even in heaven, Revelation 5 tells us that the angels, myriads upon myriads, will surround the throne and they will shout with saints, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. We could even go to 1 Peter chapter 1. Angels look into the things of the gospel and angels marvel. You want to know why? God didn't send a redeemer for angels. But they marvel at this plan that God has sent a redeemer for rebel human beings like us. And angels look into that and they marvel, 1 Peter 1.12 says. They marvel. They are astonished at what God has done. What is the author doing back to Hebrews 1 verse 7? And of the angels, God says, let all the angels worship him, and God makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Well, the second quotation, now in verse 7. Oh, wow. This is is really cool. Verse 7 of Hebrews 1, if you look at it there, is a quotation from Psalm 104. Now, why Psalm 104? Why that? Here's why. Ready? Psalm 104 is a poetic commentary of the creation account in Genesis 1. It actually goes through all the days of creation from beginning to end in Psalm 104. God is worthy of worship. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. Psalm 104 begins. Our God is powerful. Our God is creator. Our God is divine. Our God can speak and he can create things with his powerful voice. Well, so he does with angels. Psalm 104 verse 4. He makes the winds his messengers and flaming fire his ministers. What's the point of this? Worship the Son. Here's the compelling reason that He's greater. Why? Because He is the one who is the worshipped firstborn, the most elevated one. He's worshipped by the angels. God made the angels. Just like He made wind, just like He made flaming fire and lightning. God does all the work, God does the creating. Angels are created, and they worship the Son. So should we. The author of Hebrews, at the beginning of this sermon, I mean, he is coming out at the beginning of the sermon with every possible reason and motivation for us to honor and worship the Son. Again, You and I read this, and it's a little foreign to us, to be sure, because we're not tempted to worship angels. But if he was making this kind of argumentation about control, power, love of ease, comfort of life, financial securities, and what I can do for myself, and how I can live the best life that I can live for my own pleasure, for my own profit, for my own glory, and yet he's going to just show reason after reason after reason that Jesus is better. That would be really, really compelling. That's what he's doing to the Jewish audience right here in this sermon. Jesus is better. But I don't want to leave this quite yet. This point, at least, because we need to consider some applications. If the angels in Hebrews 1 worship the Son, let's think about their worship and how we can learn from them. Number one, we ought to worship Christ reverently. Reverently. Why? Because God's angels who worship the Son, have a proper heart disposition of honoring the Son. We ought to honor the Son as well. 
Number two, we ought to worship Christ appropriately. Jesus is to be exalted. We ought to have good posture in our heart when we come before him. We ought to be engaged with him when we worship him rightly. Third, we ought to worship Christ humbly like the angels do. We ought to worship Christ humbly. No pride. It's not about ourselves. It's not about what I can get out of it for my own benefit. It's what God receives from my honor and my praise. I want to elevate him. I want to worship him humbly. Angels do that. Fourth, we must worship Christ engagingly. Engagingly. We must fight distraction because angels do. We know from Isaiah they cover their feet, they cover their face with their wings. They're engaged, they're fixated on the holiness of God. They are undistracted in the worship of God. We want to be engaged as well. Next, we can worship Christ corporately, because angels do. We can worship Christ corporately, like, like the heavenly hosts who worship the Lord, and they, 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 they glorify, and they honor, and they praise the Lord, like at the birth of Christ, like in the new heavens and the new earth. There will be a corporate nature to the worship of Christ. We can do that as well. Worship Christ corporately. And you know what? We ought to worship Christ happily as well. Happily. Why? Because our Savior welcomes us. He welcomes us. He invites us to come. He summons you. He beckons you to come to Him. He beckons you. What is the author doing? What is the author saying? The author in Hebrews chapter 1 is giving these compelling motivations, these compelling scriptural proofs to show you that Jesus is better. He is more superior. Why? Well, number one, because he's the divine son. Number two, because he is the worshipped firstborn. Let me give you number three, and we'll pick up here next week as well. Number three, the third compelling motivation To know that Jesus is better. Number three, because he is the righteous king. He is the righteous king. He is God. He is righteous. He is fair. He is just. He is good. He is righteous. If you look at Hebrews chapter 1, I'll read verses 8 and 9, and we'll see how far we get here for a couple of minutes. Verse 8, but of the Son, so he just talked about angels, how God made them in verse 7. But now verse 8, notice the contrast, but of the Son, here's what God says. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Boy, if that's not a clear reference to the deity of Jesus. What is? Your throne, O God. This is the Father talking. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Verse 9, you as the king, you have loved righteousness and you have hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you. This is from Psalm 45. Psalm 45 is what we read last week for the scripture reading and the prayer. What's Psalm 45 all about? It almost sounds like a wedding psalm. And it is. It is. Psalm 45 is a royal psalm, a messianic psalm, a beautiful song. It's a wedding psalm of a royal descendant of David. But, but it wasn't David, and it wasn't Solomon. It's something far greater. It's something far more majestic, far more beautiful. This refers to Messiah. 
His throne is forever and ever. His scepter is upright. His is the perfection of the kingdom. He loves righteousness. Therefore, God, Messiah's God, has anointed him with the oil of joy above his fellows. Psalm 45 is a messianic psalm to show that Messiah is the king. He is son. He is divine. And he is worthy of worship. And the author in this section of Hebrews says, what a perfect scripture. What a perfect scripture to prove that Jesus is better. I'm going to mention just by way of concluding here, and then we'll pick up next week. Let me mention three things about this quote. Number one, it shows Jesus is divine. Your throne, O God. Jesus is God. Totally divine. Number two, the quote also shows that Jesus is devoted. He's righteous. Yours is a righteous kingship. No president, no emperor, no king, no monarch, no prince has ever been righteous like this. Not only is Jesus divine, not only is he devoted to God and righteousness, but third, he is delighted He is delighted. Oh, he he is anointed with the oil of joy and the oil of gladness. This Messiah is so divine, so righteous, so empowered that he is the only qualified one to be your Savior. The only qualified one. The question, is he your Savior? He is the preeminent firstborn. He is the divine son. He is the righteous king. The question is, is he your king? Is he your savior? Is he your God? Do you see this one as being better than life? Give me everything this world has to offer. But Jesus far outweighs it all. Give me all the things of 10,000 worlds. Give me all the pleasures and all the beauties and all the joys and all the pleasures that all of these worlds could ever offer you. And yet Jesus is better than them all. That's the point of Hebrews 1. It's very encouraging to the believer. It's very evangelistic to the unbeliever because Jesus is better. He's better. He's better. So, compelling reasons. Number one, he's the divine son. Number two, he's the worshipped firstborn. Number three, he is the righteous king. Next week, we'll learn about how he's the creator and the conqueror next week. But as we draw this to a close, I want to give you three pastoral implications. Okay, so, so you hear this. You, you, you hear Hebrews 1. You're hearing what Octor is saying. You're, you're hearing the compelling motivations that Jesus is better. And it's like, okay, I get it. So what? Number one, you have to guard. You have to guard. And I have to tell you this is a little bit of a polemic just to guard you. That anyone, anyone, anyone who would ever diminish... The deity of Christ, hear this, is a false teacher. Anyone who would diminish the deity of Christ, and there's a lot of them out there, they are a false teacher. We read it in John chapter 5. We are to honor the Son even as we honor the Father. John 5, 23. Anyone who elevates honoring other things up to the status of Christ? I mean, we could, we could give infinite applications of this. Anyone who would elevate anything else up to status of Christ is a false teacher. There's nothing that can be compared with Christ. There's no one that can be compared with Christ. There's no person, there's no pope, there's no rabbi, there's no guru, there's no teaching, there's no holy water, there's no experience that can ever be measured up to Christ. So guard. Number two, 
if I could encourage you to grow, grow. The author is going to say it all through the book of Hebrews to the believers, keep growing, keep maturing. But bear with me for a moment. You say, Jeff, what do you mean grow? Well, I would encourage you if you don't have a good systematic theology book to get one, to get one. You need to get one so you can grow deeper in sound doctrine. John MacArthur, Richard Mayhew have a great one called Biblical Doctrine. It's so big, it's even a workout to carry as well. It's a wonderful book. Joel Beakey has a great one called a Puritan Theology. You cannot go wrong with that. It's excellent. Maybe a little bit more easy to read for the layperson is Wayne Grudem's book, Systematic Theology. Very good. In fact, Paul Washer has a brand new book just off the press. It's called The Preeminent Christ. The Preeminent Christ. Or the trusted and the tried older book by John Owen on the glory of Christ would be a great one. Any of these books, what's the point? Get on your bookshelf a good book so that you can read and grow and be sound in good theology to be on guard. Guard, grow, and then third, if I could just encourage you, church family, to gaze. Gaze. Don't be so busy that you forget to marvel at Jesus. Look, you're busy, I'm busy. We've all got things, we wake up early, we go to bed late, and we've got things all day long. But don't be so busy that you neglect to stand in awe of God and to marvel at Christ and to gaze and to behold and to ponder the beauty that Jesus is better. He is better. I'll close with this. This week I was reading and I came across this story and I thought this is just a perfect conclusion to the sermon. I was reading this week about a professional artist who specializes in painting the Grand Canyon. Maybe you've been there and you've, you can testify to the beauty of the Grand Canyon. But yet, as the, as the artist was being interviewed, the artist kept saying the, the struggle that it is. It's so hard to actually paint the Grand Canyon. He said, because as soon as, as I have all my paints mixed together, and, and as soon as I'm ready to begin painting, the light shifts. And the image changes. And, and then I see more features. And then I see different features. And deeper discoveries of the amazing canyon. At one point, the interviewer said, or the the, the artist said, learning how to paint the Grand Canyon well, I think, will take me a lifetime. Every moment is always different when I try to paint the canyon. Because clouds fly over, and shadows crawl in, and colors shift with the speed of lightning. And I can try abstracting it like you would any landscape. But because of the amazing complexity of the Grand Canyon, it resists any easy analysis. It's so breathtaking. It's so beautiful. It's so big. And it sort of lures me away because as I'm about to paint on the canvas, then I find myself looking back at the canyon and I'm stunned at the beauty of the canyon. Guess what? Jesus is more stunning than the canyon. He is more stunning than the canyon. Look at him. Gaze upon him. See the beauty and the complexity and the brilliance and the majesty of the sun. And gaze upon him and gaze upon him and then gaze upon him some more. How great it is to look to the sun. And we look to him and we see him in his beauty and we say, he is better. He's better. He is more superior than anything, anything, anything this life could ever offer. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for Hebrews chapter 1 and 
the sermon that we are studying as we seek to understand more of the glory of the Son. We pray that you would show us more of his radiance, more of his deity, more of his praiseworthiness, more of his kingship, more of his righteousness, and that we would be drawn to him even more. Be glorified, we pray, in Jesus' name.